Well, peace be with you. Cooper was five years old uh, when it happened. Uh, Cooper was one of those young kids who's happy and he was joyful. And uh, he was the youngest of four siblings. He had three older sisters, kind of a little guy that people just really got along well with. And uh, he got along well with people, and their family loved to spend time together, you know, for the most part. Uh, they lived on a farm. They went to, to worship together. Well, Cooper and his dad, his dad was named J.J., had some free time one day, and they would go in these um, carts and these little, uh, you know, spins in these little carts, a roll cage cart down these dirt roads. And they'd done this many times before, and they were ripping down, and they spun around like they always do, but something happened which had never happened before, uh, which was that it flipped. Panic, pain, dread, and little five-year-old Cooper was unresponsive. The dad quickly called 911. There's been an accident. I don't think Cooper is going to make it. And so the ambulance came and they rushed to the hospital and they were in the emergency room and, and all the franticness that happens in praying and receiving phone calls and giving phone calls and just hoping, hoping and doctors rushing around. And then after a while, they, they got word that young Cooper had gone to heaven. Everything was now different as they navigated the shock. J.J., the father, said, There is no class or book on this planet that can prepare you to have your five-year-old son die in your arms. We know what the bottom looks like. When he had to break the news to his oldest daughter, because she hadn't learned the news yet, um, this is Cooper's older sister, he prepared her by saying, Honey, I need you to hold on to everything you know about who God is because I have some really tough news to tell you. Well, we're in the middle of a teaching series uh, on the most famous psalms, and today we arrive at Psalm uh, 88. And some of the different psalms have different things that make them stand out. Um, Psalm 1, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Psalm 23 is so comforting. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so what is something that makes Psalm 88 stand out? What makes it unique is that it records someone crying out to God in the utter depths of despair and disappointment. And some of the psalms, and this is called a psalm of lament, uh, a song of lament or of sorrow, and so there's many of these in the Psalter in the 150 psalms. Uh, but one of the things that the other, thing, other psalms do is at the end they have some sort of uptick, some sort of upswing that, oh, wait a second, things are going to be okay in the end, or the, the wicked will pay, or there's some word of hope or praising God. Not so with Psalm 88. Verse 18, the final verse, ends with these words, Darkness is my closest friend. If you're going through something and darkness is your closest friend, you are going through something very, very difficult. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says this is the darkest, of, uh, darkest poem in the book, meaning the book of Psalms. Another thing that's interesting, too, about Psalm 88 uh, that makes it a bit different than some of the other psalms is the other psalms, if someone's going through personal hardship, it's just something personal they're going through, or if there is an opponent, that opponent might be a friend who has turned their back, it might be some sort of uh, political enemy, or quite often it is a foreign army. Here, the psalmist is in such desperate straits, he's seeing such heaviness upon himself that he envisions that his opponent is none other than God himself. Your wrath lays heavy upon me, he says. And so he experiences, he feels as if it is the wrath of God coming on down on him, which is really the only person who can save him or help him. 
And so when we look at Psalm 88, and part of the reason this is so important to take some time to think about is because uh, it shows us the breadth of human experience. If you want some sort of psalms and books that are like, oh, everything's great and it's hunky-dory and life is wonderful all the time, don't look at the Bible. The Bible's too honest for that. There is power and there is honesty. There is the breadth of human experience. And when we read psalms like this, we are reminded yet again, oh, wait a second, bad things actually do happen to good people. That is reality. Now, before we look directly at the psalm itself, I want to offer a word of perspective about pain in our modern times. We need to take seriously the fact that pain and difficulty and despair has been a part of human experience uh, forever, certainly since the garden. And, and we need the reminder because we live in this age of the quick fix and there's pills and there's hospitals and everything else, and we can forget that pain has been a really, a really big part of human history. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, the recently deceased Tim Keller describes how suffering bothers us greatly in these modern times because we're not accustomed to it, and certainly not as much as our ancestors. Quote, today we are more shocked and undone by suffering than were our ancestors. In medieval Europe, approximately one in every five infants died before their first birthday. Only half of all children survived to the age of 10. Only half survived to the age of 10. The average family buried half their children when they were still little, and the children died at home, not sheltered away from eyes and hearts. Life for our ancestors was filled with far more suffering than ours is, and yet we have innumerable diaries, journals, and historical documents that reveal how they took that hardship in grief in far better stride than we do. One scholar of ancient European history observed how unnerving it is for modern readers, us, to see how much more unafraid people 1,500 years ago were in the face of loss, violence, suffering, despair, and death. And others said that while we are taken aback sometimes by the cruelty we see in our ancestors, they would, if they could see us, be equally shocked by our softness, worldliness, and timidity. End quote. Now, let me be very clear. Here's why I share that. I do not share that to undermine or to cast aside the the reality, the power, the difficulty of our own hardship. I'm not, I'm not casting it aside at all. The reason I share that is for two reasons. One, that suffering and hardship has always been a part of the human experience. But secondly, in this modern period, because we are used to more comforts, we can you know, get all sorts of things at the push of a button, quick fix, everything else. Because of all these things, we have somehow forgotten how to deal with difficulty, how to deal with trauma as our ancestors may have. And so as we go through the psalm, I invite us to think about those times when we feel personally as if God has let us down. Have you ever felt like God has let you down? I'm sure there, there has been times as we think through those times. Maybe when illness came to the house or someone you care about. God, it's not supposed to be this way. Maybe you wanted a baby, but it never happened. Maybe <clears throat> you experienced some sort of personal attack or disaster that made your life go like this. Um, maybe you had some sort of anxiety or worry so hard and bad. You wondered, maybe it would just be better if I wasn't on the earth. 
Everyone will have different things that they have wrestled with and struggled with. You ever felt like God has let you down? And so what are we to do when we feel like God, the one who is supposed to be almighty, and who is supposed to be loving and sovereign and good, seems to have let us down? To explore some answers, we're going to turn to Psalm 88. And so we're going to go open our Bibles, and um, uh, right near the middle of, of the Psalter, I'm reading from the ESV translation of the Bible. And I'm going to start off by putting the the, the kind of introduction, okay? Now, this is kind of like the, the subtitle. It says, a song, uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So as you recall from previous times, um, the sons of Korah, these are people as a part of the tribe of Levi, and they, uh, they're responsible for certain things in worship and music. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, Lianath, uh, there's some kind of scholarly ambiguity about what that means. Perhaps it means this belongs to a, a genre of sorrow. Uh, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. Heman, not He-Man, different. Uh, Heman the Ezraite. Now, it's interesting because it gives us actually a specific name of a person, Heman the Ezraite, who writes this. Um, this is the only psalm by Heman. And it's interesting because we, we actually learned something about Heman the Ezraite back in 1 Kings 4.31, that he is known to be a person of wisdom. Known to be a person of wisdom. Okay, So this is back in the time of David and Solomon. Oh, 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 Heman, okay, you need some wisdom for life? You go talk to him, Okay. So with that bit of an introduction, we begin at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Okay, so we've often said that the first verse is like the theme or the governing sentence of a song. So in high school or university or college, you learn how to write essays. And that first paragraph, that's like your thesis. That's what you need to keep coming back to. And, and that's what exists here in verse 1, okay? O Lord. So when you see Lord in all capitals... In the Old Testament, it's translating the personal name for God from Hebrew, Yahweh. So he's calling out to Yahweh, his God, in a personal way, God of my salvation. Now, this is important because this is a governing theme verse. And so it's as if him and the Ezraite is reminding God about who he is. Hey, this is who you are. William Gurnall, who was a Puritan who wrote a lot about spiritual warfare, says, if Christians would be effective, they must... Show God his own handwriting in prayer. They must show God his own handwriting in prayer. Now, what does that mean? The sense is like, okay, God, this is who you are in this group. You, you are the God of, of my salvation. God, that's you, not me. You're the helper. I, I can't, this, is, this is your promises. This is who you say you are. And so I'm in the pits. You need to be helping me because I can't do it on my own. You're almighty. I am not. You have all the strength, and I'm in a pit, Lord. This is who you are, so you need to respond. I cry out day and night before you. He cries out. He's not mumbling as if he doesn't care. He's not apathetic. He's crying out day and night, which means all the time. Verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles. Full. And my life draws near to Sheol. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Sheol is... is uh, is envisioned as a kind of a shadowy underworld for the dead. And so he's like, I'm in such dire straits, I feel like I'm already half in the grave. Verse 4, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. 
You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. So Selah is like that mysterious Hebrew word, probably a musical notation here. But again, right? And some of the Psalms is like there's this adversary here. He is so low. He is so at the bottom. He is so at the end of his rope that, Lord, this is surely your wrath which is heavy upon me. Because nothing else could be this strong. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. Uh, a lot of people know Helen Keller, a really um, well-known inspirational figure uh, in many ways. She has this expression uh, that she has used. Walking with a friend in the dark uh, is better than walking alone in the light. Walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. The idea is that friendship and having someone to walk with us through those difficult moments is so important that it's better for us to be experienced darkness and have a friend than have, have things be really great in our lives but go through it alone, such as the pain of aloneness. And so Heman the Ezraite is here saying he doesn't even have that. He's in the valley. He feels like the Lord has put him there and he's alone and he's got no one to be with him. Verse 9, my eyes grow dim through sorrow every day. I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Uh, that's, a, that's a posture of prayer. So he's praying to God. It's, it's humility and receptivity. Verse 10, and in the next couple of verses, he says um, uh, six, six clauses and four questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Might be a synonym for Sheol. Literally, it means destruction, so it could just mean that. Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Right? And so he's presuming that the answer to all those things is no. Lord, I'm, I'm already half in the grave. I, I can't get out of this. There, I, I'm no use to you on this earth I can't praise you. I, I can't serve you. I can't do anything, Lord, because I'm in this state. So what good is it if I die? Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The face or the countenance of the Lord to be turned towards you is a sign of favor. And so when the face of the Lord turns away, Hell. Verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. So here we learn something that he's been experiencing this affliction since his youth. Some people experience pain and difficulty for the majority of their lives, and this seems to be the case with Heman. And then he says, I am helpless, and the Hebrew word is a bit, a bit difficult to translate, so scholars... Um, suggest helpless might be the closest word we have in English. But the point is here that self-help is nothing. God help is everything. I'm helpless. I can't do anything. And so quite often we're going through something and we feel like, okay, I could just pull my, pull my bootstraps up and I can get out of this by myself. But if you have no strength, can't do it. You're just lying there in the bed, lying there on the ground, sitting in the car, staring into the distance at the end of a dead-end road thinking, Lord, this has got to be all you. 
Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. You surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Here it almost sounds like Jonah in the waters. The waves engulfed and circled around me. And, 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 and you can see like the, the, the surface up there. And you're bubbling and you're going down. The threat is drowning. And, and if you open your mouth and gulp, if you're on a picnic, a water will give you life and refreshment. If you're drowning, it will bring death. Verse 18, the final verse. You have caused my beloved... And my friend, to shun me, my companions have become darkness. Or in the NAV, darkness is my closest friend. No uptick, no upswing at the end. Everything's going to work out. It's fine. There it ends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when you read through a psalm like that, that is powerful. That is honest. Where do you go from here? Who do we see in the psalm? Now, um, I think it's it's important to mention that one of the people we see in the psalm is Jesus. Uh, Jesus we see in this, especially the verses around anguish or abandonment. As Jesus is going through everything that he has done for us on the cross, leading up there, he has experienced incredible anguish, abandonment by many of his friends. And so we see Jesus in this psalm as he's there suffering for us, paying the price for what we deserve on the cross. So we see in this a lot of the experience of Jesus. Another person we see uh, probably is the Old Testament figure of Job. Uh, Job is a figure that people turn to uh, for, for guidance or, or someone to sympathize with what they're going through because he went through so much hardship, right? Uh, but even Job, things come around at the end. Not necessarily so for Heman the Ezraite. So as we think more directly for ourselves, uh, let's, let's underscore, I think, a helpful perspective by um, uh, a pastor named Charles Crabtree because this is going to frame our four responses for how Psalm 88 might be helpful to us. Here's what he says. He says, never put a period where God puts a comma. Okay? Never put a period where God puts a comma. So the idea is that sometimes in our thinking, we will put a period somewhere, meaning we will think something is final. We will ascribe to something a certain level of finality when we shouldn't. When really God is putting a comma there. So there's more to the sentence. We might not be able to feel it yet. We might not be able to see it yet. But yet it is there in the timing and in the sovereignty of God. Never put a period where God puts a comma. So example one, I am in pain, period. But the period is premature. Let's try it again. I am in pain, comma, but this pain won't last. Okay, well, that's an entirely different sentence. The comma has replaced the period, meaning what we see isn't all there is to see. Okay? Another example, I feel alone, period. Well, that's... That's a, that's a very deep sentence. But the period is premature. Let's try it again. I feel alone, comma, but my feelings can't always be trusted because God is sustaining me. And so that's a totally different sentence, right? And so all of a sudden that comma replaces the period and I realize, oh, wait a second, all I see isn't all there is to see. That is what is meant by never put a period where God puts a comma. Let's take that principle and then apply it to, in four areas to Psalm First, you need to stay brutally honest before God in prayer. Brutally honest. This is one of the things that happens to us in Psalm 88. Now, you, you think Ezra, sorry, Heman the Ezraite, you think he's disconnected from God. You think he's totally connected, the relationship is gone. Not so. Why? The entire thing is a prayer. The entire thing is a prayer. He's crying out to God. He prays to God in the morning again and again and again. So the relationship isn't actually fractured. He's actually praying and calling out to God the entire time. 
which is something we need to learn in our own dark moments. Uh, George Buttrick, who was a famous preacher, said, It feels like we are beating on heaven's door with bruised knuckles in the dark. Beating on heaven's door in moments like this with bruised knuckles in the dark. It may feel that way, but we are knocking on the door. And we need to continue to do so. And so the same must be true for us. Keep knocking. Keep praying. This keeps you connected, really, to the only one who can truly help. Just because you feel disappointed now, that doesn't mean you're going to be disappointed always. And so if you stop talking to God with brutal honesty and think there's no way he's going to reply, there's no answer coming for you, that's you putting a period where God puts a comma. Number two, be receptive to the ways that your hardship may be making you wiser. And that this wisdom that you may be gaining could be for the blessing and benefit of others. And let's be honest, this is not something you want to hear when you are in the midst of a dark valley. Okay, so I recognize that. It's not something you want to hear. And the reason for that is because you just want out of it. Get me out of this. I don't, I don't care if I'm being refined or changed or strengthened. I just need out. So let's be honest about that. But just because we feel that way, that does not mean that God isn't doing something. He says he's afflicted from youth. And when we look at this, why, Matthew, that might be a nice point, but why is this connected at all to Psalm 88? Isn't this a bit of a stretch? No. Who's the author? It's Heman. In 1 Kings 4.31, we learn that he is a wise person. People in the days of David and Solomon go to him for wisdom. And he is someone who has experienced affliction since his youth. Verse 15. So this is someone who's been through such affliction. He has gained that. He has gained experience. He has gained knowledge in it to the point where he has gained a reputation that other people go to him for wisdom when they are in the depths. And so clearly it had some sort of impact on him in his life. And we all know this. How many of us, you've been in some difficulty, and you say, I need to talk to somebody. And I need to talk to somebody, and, and you go to talk to someone, and as you're getting information from them about them, you realize they've never really been through any significant hardship in their life, certainly nothing like you have. You are not going to listen to that person as much as you would to another person. And this person has been through pain and difficulty and they've got experience and everything else and they haven't been through exactly your same thing because no one's ever been through the exact same thing as you, but they've been through some hardship. You're going to listen to that person in all likelihood much more than the person who has not been through anything difficult. And so... The experiences of hardship that we have can contribute to the wisdom that we might be able to share with others down the road. And so think of your life. One day, what if someone came to you and that person only comes to you and they, they're going through something difficult and they come to you and they need someone who understands something of pain and difficulty and wrestling with God and everything else. What if that person came to you and you were the source of strength, you were the source of hope, you were the source of wisdom because you had been through something difficult and now you can help them in a way that you could not before? And so if you think that your difficult experiences have nothing to do with your future self and who you might be able to be in some important relationship in the future, if that's what you think, there's no value in it at all. Nothing redeemable. Might you be putting a period where God is actually putting a comma? Third, trust in a God who saves even if you have to wait. 
even if you have to wait. Verse 1, that's the fundamental truth of the psalm. He calls her to the God of my salvation. If that is who he believes God to be, he does believe that that is God, even if he has to wait to feel some of that powerful relief in his life. Friends, pain may be a chapter in your story, but it's not the defining chapter, and it certainly isn't the final chapter. Pain may be a chapter in your story, but it's not the defining chapter, and it certainly isn't the final chapter. Haman will experience the fullness of God's saving help soon or eventually or ultimately. Soon or eventually or ultimately. Ronnie Martin, who's a pastor in Ohio, points out that there's a really close connection between waiting and believing in the Bible. Waiting, believing, waiting, believing. So much so that throughout the course of the pages of Scripture, God's people are told to wait and believe, to wait and believe. 227 times do those things go together. And the same can be true for us. Believing and waiting are closely connected, and so that's why we need to play the long game. If you're in Christ, you will experience the fullness of God's help, either soon or eventually or ultimately. If you don't feel as if God is acting now, and therefore, since you can't feel his help now, that he is never going to act, that's you putting a period where God puts a comma. Fourth and finally, auto-correct your perspective with consistent worship. Okay, auto-correct your perspective with consistent worship. So one of the things that happens is when we are in a low place or a dark valley, whatever it happens to be, our, our thinking can get skewed and all over the place, and we're not usually thinking clearly, right? We kind of tend to isolate, and all we hear is all the negative consequences and all the possible disasters. That's what happens in our, in our minds, right? And I've used the word auto-correct because... Where do we use that word? Usually we're, we're, we're texting something or we're typing something and our laptop or our phone kind of auto-corrects our spelling mistakes or whatever it happens to be, right? Worship has that kind of auto-correct function to your faulty thinking as you're going through life and navigating difficulty. We isolate, we think of this, it's all about negativity all the time. All of a sudden, we gather together with God's people, reminded about, oh, here are the promises of God. God is the God of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is powerfully at work, and we are praying, and we are singing songs. It autocorrects what we cannot do for ourselves when we isolate in this world of chaotic negativity. And again, wait a second, where where does this come from? I don't see that in the psalm. Well, it's so obvious, we almost miss it. Heman the Ezraite is a part of the sons of Korah. This is a family who creates songs for worship for God's people. And so as he's going through all this, he doesn't just keep it to himself. This isn't his private journal. He's constructed something specifically for God's people to use for thousands of years when they're going through difficulty. He's like, I've been through this. More people are going to go through this. Generations upon generations are going to deal with difficulty. And so I'm not going to keep this to myself. I'm going to create this into a psalm. God's people are going to be able to use it in worship so that they will know that they are not alone and we can cry out to the God of our salvation and be honest about it when things are falling apart and we just need to lay it all on the table. So if you stick to yourself and you consciously neglect the word of God and you consciously neglect the worship of God with his people together, you are putting a period where God is actually putting a comma. So I started this message telling you about young Cooper. 
a happy five-year-old boy, lovable, loved, who died in that buggy accident. And remember how the father, J.J., prepared his oldest daughter to receive the news. He said, I need you, honey. I need you to hold on to everything you know about who God is. Because I have some really tough news to tell you. And as we go through our own disappointments and moments of despair and hardship, we too need to hold on to everything we know about who God is. Because when we don't feel it, we need to know it. When we don't feel it, we need to know it. That he is still, no matter what, the God of our salvation. Whenever Cooper's father, J.J., tells the story about what happened in his family, this is what he says. We know what the bottom looks like. And we know who is waiting there. Jesus Christ. To summarize, first, stay brutally honest before God in prayer. Second, be receptive to the ways your hardship may be making you wiser. Third, trust in the God who saves even if you have to wait. Fourth, autocorrect your perspective with consistent worship. Don't put a period where God puts a comma. Amen.